0: so uh because I'm uncomfortable with that uh with it being way too too practical let's let's take our bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians and, and the two go together 1 Corinthians chapter 2 I'm going to be talking today about communication and the importance of using good communication skill when teaching or preaching the word of God and so I go to the. I'm going to go to the text that um, is most used to argue against communication and oratory skills, uh, because Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse beginning verse 1, and when I came to you, brothers and sisters, did not I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. All right, so here, as we're getting ready to talk about communication and oratory skills, is a text where it appears, at least, that Paul's saying, I didn't have... Communication skills and oratory skills. I didn't regard any of that as necessary or needful. And you might even say he's, he's saying it's distracting. It takes away from the power of God. So we need to describe what, we, what, we're, what he's saying and understand what he's saying so that you know, the, the lecture makes sense in its context. All right, so let's look first of all at what he says he is doing. He's come to do what according to this text? What is his purpose for going to Corinth? To do what? Preach the, Preach the cross. I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. I'm not here to debate traditions of men. I'm not here to argue with you about Jewish myths. I'm not here to talk about uh, anything except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We can say He came to proclaim, as He says, the, the testimony of God. I've come to proclaim the testimony of God. So He's testifying... On behalf of the testimony of God. Uh, and the testimony of God is put forward most clearly in who? Jesus Christ, right? Hebrews chapter 1. In many, in, in many times, in many various ways, God spoke to us, our fathers, in times past. But in these last days, He spoke to us in who? In the Son. Jesus Christ. So, the clearest most pure, and most distinct testimony of God is Jesus Christ. Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Right? I mean, no man comes to the Father except through me. We're led and do believe by the confession. We make the confession that we will never see God the Father with our eyes. We will never see God the Father with our eyes because he's a spirit. And he does not have a body like men. So, who will we see in heaven? The testimony of God. And what is the testimony of God? Or who is the testimony? What person is the testimony of God? Jesus Christ. Okay? So, that's what Paul has come to Corinth to proclaim the testimony of God, the power of the cross, Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's his purpose. All right? So, what's his method? He gives you the method right there in the text. What's his method? In Corinth, what method did did, did Paul use to proclaim Christ? The demonstration of the Spirit's power. Not what? Not his power. Not my speech, not my message, not my wisdom, not my oratory skills. I've come to you in weakness and in fear and in trembling and my speech and my message are not implausible or powerful or or, uh, trained or rhetorical words. That's not how I came to you in Corinth. I came to you preaching the power of the Spirit, the testimony of Jesus Christ. All right? He's he's, um, pretty straightforward in this text about his lack of oratory or his lack of a Of a focus on oratory skill. But hold your place here and turn in Acts chapter 17 because before we go too far and go beyond what Paul means here, we need to to see Paul in action. Acts 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, he's waiting. for his companions to join him. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned. (gasps) He did what? He made a plausible argument. I thought he said he didn't make plausible arguments. He reasoned in the Jewish synagogues. And the devout with devout persons. And in the marketplace, so not just in the synagogue with the Jews, because we could say, well, he reasoned when he went to the Jews. He used oratory and, and reasoned when he went to the Jews, rhetorical devices, but he didn't do that with the Greeks. But that's not true because he goes into the marketplace filled with Greek businessmen, filled with the people of Athens, and he reasons with them. And he uses oratory skill with them. He did this in the daytime with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Now, I want to tell you, just in case you think, well, how do you know he used oratory and rhetorical device? Because the the Stoics and the Epicureans would not have listened to him. They would not have sat and philosophized with him had he not used good, reasonable, sound technique. He argued like a a trained person philosopher when he was in Athens and he goes on and and he actually uses one of the greatest um, in my opinion one of the greatest most sound most tight reasoned uh, defenses of the gospel ever what does he do he goes to their idol to the unknown god and then he backs them in the corner he uses a beautiful debate tactic. He uses their argument, he turns it, and he runs it to Christ, and he backs them in the, gar- in, into the, in the corner. He leaves them speechless. Some believed, some didn't. Some argued, some left and never came back. But Paul was brilliant in his argument in this case. And so, we're left to look at it. 1 Corinthians seems to indicate on the surface just there in that one text that he did not use plausible arguments and he did not use rhetoric and he did not make educated, uh, sound, philosophical um, argumentation his, his mode of operation. But then he does it in Athens. So what's going on? Talk with me about it. What do you think's happening here? And the answer's in the text, so that you're not you know, it's not in the text we read, but it's just it's in the context. What's going on in Corinth? Different cities have different needs. Yeah. They didn't need him to uh
1: philosophize with them and you know, be a great laureator for them. Mm-hmm. He needed to demonstrate they to be a
0: Oh, now Eric, what, where did you see that? Just, uh, just, I'm not trying to trip you up. You're, I think you're on. I think y'all are both on to something. Where did you see that in the context of 1 Corinthians? Yeah, and they have a tendency for division, do they not? Look at chapter 3. Some say they're of Apollos, and some of Cephas, and some of Paul. And I tell you, I didn't baptize any of you, and I'm thankful I didn't do it. What their problem seems to be is to put too much, uh, we could call it um, celebrity, into the pastor. The people in Corinth are hero worshipers. The people in Corinth want to hold up some human and say, oh, that's who we follow. And Paul said, I didn't come to you that way. I didn't come to you to convince you that you should follow me. I came to preach Christ and Him crucified and that's it. Don't worship Paul. I'm the messenger. I'm not the message. Yes. (coughs) Yes. I <coughs> <Yeah>, Absolutely. <laughs> they get points for it. I mean, you know, he make an
1: argument and it would absolutely but he had that great <laughs> <laughs> very
0: Yeah. And, yeah, and and here we see a little bit of Paul becoming all things to all men, so that some might believe. In other words, it's really contrary to what we think in the application of that passage. Paul knew what they needed. So that they did not put their faith in him, but in the gospel. So he became that for them. In this case, he came to them with, with, without tight logic and without all of the, the, uh, the uh, surrounding. And you kind of have to study a little about oratory in their day and rhetoric in their day. But it was, it was the the Greek culture was based completely on philosophy, and this philosophy was argued through the the measure of rhetoric and the way that you spoke, and and, and they worshiped this, and so Paul, when he comes here, knowing this about these people, becomes to them like an uneducated man. Now, we know Paul was very educated, highly trained. He was the Pharisee of the Pharisees, and so I'm saying all that to say it's a wrong application, and I've heard it made in the church and I may have overheard, I don't know of anybody, but I may have overheard some of you making this argument, that, well, we just shouldn't worry about the way we present what we present. We just shouldn't worry about the way uh, we communicate. Just don't worry about that. Just preach the gospel. And that sounds good, but it's not always advisable. I mean, if we leave here, and we go into uh, the uh, d- into uh, the college campus. There's going to be a change in the way we package and communicate. Necessarily, there's going to be a difference. If you don't do that, and I and I actually get tickled at people that say they don't do it, because everybody does. You everyone. We we sat at, together for the gospel and listened to this. Debate among friends about contextualizing the sermon, the message, and they were really hard on this one guy. And but the point is, every one of them on that stage contextualizes based on their people. They do it all the time. They do it every day. If they did, as a matter of fact, it's contextualizing for us to speak in English when we read the Bible. That's contextualization. We're not reading the Greek. That's what it was written in. So if we just want to be hardliners, we just read the Greek. You wouldn't understand a word of what was being said, but we'd be true to the, to the original, right? But we, that'd be silly. We'd say, why do you do that? They can't understand you. Well, Paul obviously is not rejecting all contextualization. He himself contextualized, but he never compromised. What he saw was that if I contextualize in this case, if I fit what they're looking for, then I'm going to compromise the sermon. I'm going to compromise the message. So sometimes you may be very aware of the audience you're about to speak to, and you may make an intentional decision to not be what they're looking for, to be a contrast to what they're looking for, so the message stands on its own. You may make that decision, but make make that decision intelligently and spend some time praying over it before you go into the group. Um, We don't have any problem with contextualization in in other areas, (laughs) I would argue, uh, besides preaching. What are some areas where we contextualize for our audience? We put things in their language. Children. Children. Yeah, when we're we're teaching children, we we very much get on the ground. I see some of you, you come in here, you got on slacks and a a button-down shirt, but your Sunday to watch the little kids, you come in with blue jeans and a almost a t-shirt on. Why? Because you're going to get in the floor and you're going to play with them and you're going to act out the story possibly and you're going to do all kinds of things that you wouldn't necessarily do up here in the pulpit. Why? Because you want them to understand. Right? Not going to change the message, but you're going to present it in a different way. What's some other areas that we contextualize? Not even just in our, the way we speak, but just think broadly. What's some ways we contextualize? (laughs)
1: you might of culture
0: yeah culture yeah in, they're in, embedded in each culture are these idols like paul approached in athens there are um, you know there are cultures around the world that have a, a have uh, sacrificial babies where, where they sacrifice uh, one child for the sake of all the other children when a disease breaks out. So they substitute one child for all the children. Now that might be something you could latch on to and then go to talk about the true substitution, right? You wouldn't talk about it as if this is one-to-one correlation, but rather you see this idea of someone taking someone else's place. I can tell you about the one who really took our place. That's That would be contextualizing. I'm thinking about music. Do we not contextualize in music? You must be honest. I mean, we're not a high church, are we? We don't, we don't only play with the pipe organ and the piano. And by the way, when they started using those instruments, they were contextualizing. So... Music is, is one of those things, and hardly, now there's disagreement about whether I like it or not, but hardly anybody now around here in our church at least and around in our circles argues about using different types of music, different styles of, styles of accompaniment, different instruments. Nobody argues about that around here. Now I know at large it may be, nobody is bothered about it. We actually like it. We're thankful for it. So in the same way, we can do these kind of things with the, with the message without <laughs> destroying the message. But we pick our music, especially at Grace Fellowship, we make decisions based around the, the content of the song, not the style of the song. And that's what we should do in sermons also. Make your decision about how good a sermon is based on the content of the sermon, not the, the trappings and the communication skill of the sermon. I'd rather be bored to tears listening to the truth than I had to be entertained to hell listening to a falsehood. Okay? There'd be a lot of entertained people in hell. A lot of people who were very well taken care of in that department. They never heard the truth.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, so we see people in Uganda with uh, with uh, suits like mine and pulpits like mine and they are speaking to people have no no concept of what that means, where that comes from. But it's equally offensive. We're going to talk about it later. It's equally offensive to be in this culture and reject what this culture, that's not not sinful, it's just amoral, uh, the way they view dress for the pastor too. It's just as sinful, I would argue, to ignore what's expected uh, just, just to make a statement of some kind. So... Um, I'll give you one, and this is the, there's probably maybe better books out there, (laughs) I don't know, this is an old standard uh, book on communication in the pulpit and and in teaching, and uh, it was written years ago by um, uh, Faisal, and he uh, he, he was well known in his day, trying to think, Um, uh, but uh, there may be better ones, but this is one. All right, let's look, you should have with you these things, I want to go through this, and Talk about it. God has given us instruments for communication. God is a communicator Himself, and He has made us in His image, and so therefore we are communicators. And the most important of those is your voice. And um, one of the uh, one of the things we need to do when we're when we're talking about voice is to warn that the voice is mechanically uh, an instrument and can be damaged can be damaged There's a lot of preachers who can't finish their career or teachers because they lose their, their vocal cords they lose their ability to project and they're their, their, um, just using bad techniques so we want to be very careful we've been helped in this area because of what I've got on right now which is a microphone they're not we're not having like, <coughs> like Spurgeon one of the things Spurgeon did to weed out pastors in his day was have them speak in the open air he just listened to them. If they could not speak with great volume, then they they weren't preachers. It didn't matter how smart they were, how talented they were. You're just not made to be a preacher, son. They can't hear you. Uh, we were uh, meeting with Bob Saint John and, and and Ryan, and some of you were at the leadership thing they're doing with their church and Redeemers leaders, and uh, Thursday night, and yeah, I laughed because Bob said some sometimes you know when we pray in public we need to pray loud. If you're called on to pray, stand and pray loud in the fellowship. And he said, you know, some brothers, I just never call on them to pray. Because though they're talking so sweetly to God, nobody else can hear a word they're saying. And, you know, I think that way about some people I've seen. They kind of get this real passive and reflective voice. And they just love you so much when they're preaching. I'm like, you know, speak up. You know, I'm glad you love me, but talk to me. You know, and uh, so, but we want to do that correctly. And a part of that, uh, we, are, we struggle with in our culture. You're going to struggle. If you use your voice a lot, you're going to struggle because we don't open our mouth. We don't, it's just the way our southern slang. We don't open our mouth. We don't pronounce our words well. And we speak very fast, believe it or not, very fast. We run our words together. We take We don't breathe properly when we begin to speak, especially up front. And so you see the preacher's running to the very end of his breath. So he's straining hard in those vocal tones. And that will destroy more than anything. I had a professor, a great professor in seminary who had to have vocal cord surgery. Very extensive. Had to be out of the pulpit for a year. Couldn't speak for three months. Couldn't couldn't go above a whisper for three months because he had over 20 years had just destroyed his voice. And so it's important. If you're going to be teaching often, if you're going to be preaching, you need to learn some technique. So um, you need to project naturally so that you're clear and unstrained. Don't, you may be loud, but you're not screaming. You're not unrestrained screaming at the audience. Now, sometimes if you're passionate, people think you're hollering. You ever been there? You know, I, I can talk like at this tone with my children, and they start that lip starts quivering. And I say, "What are you doing? You're just hollering at me, Daddy." I'm I'm like, "No, I'm passionate. I'm not hollering," you know. But but that that <coughs> we want to be uh, passionate in our in our presentation, but we don't want to be screaming. Nobody likes to be screamed at, especially not unnecessarily. I mean, if we're running off in a ditch and about to die, yeah, scream at me, but don't holler at me at church necessarily. So we want to be clear and we want to be unstrained. We want to speak and pronounce in such a way that people throughout the audience don't have to be working hard to simply understand what we're saying. They may have to work hard to understand the point that we're making, but they're not to work hard just simply to understand us when we're talking. Secondly, with this in mind, we think about the appropriateness uh, of the crowd. You notice I don't teach with the same, um, same inflection in my voice, the same uh, even level of, of volume in here as I do from the pulpit. Partly it's because we're this close, and also there's not near as many of you. And, um, and so <coughs> the venue and the number of people in attendance is going to have a lot to do with how... You uh, project, you got to think about that. You know, I've been uh, asked to, to preach at churches sometimes um, to fill in a pulpit I know nothing about the church, I show up and there's 20 people. It's a small church. I actually preached over for a friend of mine in Wadley one time and there was 10 people there. I immediately shifted gears. I, I just I changed because it was a more intimate setting and I asked them to sit up close and we Talked a lot more like this than my normal style. Why? Because it was appropriate. It was appropriate. And, uh, and you know, if, if we're trying to be authentic in our communication, you got to pay attention to these things. It's nothing worse than seeing a guy talking to five people like he's talking to 5,000. Now, don't misunderstand. It's not that your passion for the subject changes. It's that your appropriateness for the venue changes. You should be just as passionate for five as you are for 5,000. But the, but the technique and the voice projection is different. It's very different. If you don't recognize that, people think, well, boy, he thinks he's Billy Graham up here talking to 100,000 people and there's six of us here. You know, it just comes across fake. So just be careful about that. Also, um, making sure that we inflect in our voice and use different tones so that we're not monotonous, monotone, monotone. Um, We've all sat through that, haven't we? we, have, we and I'm not going to use his name, but we had a guy in our home church, and he would, he was on staff, and he was probably, in my early life, one, one of the most uh, Christian examples I had. The way he lived his life, the way he raised his family, the way he loved his wife, his hospitality to people in our church and in the community. In the years I was at the church, in 18 years, and he was there about 12 of those years, All of my memory uh, really comes from him being there. I mean, I can't tell you how many people were at our church because he was personally witnessing to them and bringing them in, okay? But when he filled the pulpit, attendance dropped. Like You couldn't announce that this guy was going to preach because if you did, people got sick and people had to go visit family and go on long-lost fishing trips that they had forgotten they had and it was going to run out. You know, if I don't go now, i lose my fishing trip. You know, all kinds of crazy stuff. <laughs> and it was because of this very point right here. He had a great sermon. If you took his sermon, let somebody else preach it, it would been first class. But the problem was when he got up, he was just boring. I mean, he just talked to you just kind of like this the whole time. He never changed anything about the way he inflected his voice, nor about whether his passion was up or down or what he thought about the sermon. It was just an hour just like this. And I mean, by the time he got done, you were... Straining, just toothpicks in the eyes, you know. You don't want that. That's a distraction. Okay. Now, overprojection can be a distraction, right? It seems inauthentic. It seems insincere. It seems like you're putting on a show. This guy's acting in front of me. It's not really this important. I mean, it's it's not really important that you overdo it, but you don't want to go to the other extreme either. Some people misunderstand um, in our heroes of the faith. Let me give you. To end this point, let me give you two guys from the same time and era, and and just kind of <coughs> how we miss what went on in history. The first is George Whitfield. Does anybody know anything about Whitfield's preaching? What was he accused of? Overacting. Yeah, he cried. Jonathan Edwards's wife said, when he pronounced the word Mesopotamia, he can make a man cry. You know, and so. Uh, he was, he was a, a master orator. He, uh, he had uh, posture and gesture in his sermons. He was, he was very, um, very much preached the sermon with his whole body. And so he, in, he was in t- called an actor. And he, his response when he was charged with this went something like, we act... And we dramatize to, at the theater, and it has no eternal value. So, if I'm charged with pleading and acting so that men be saved, then that's you know that's that's fine with me. If 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 I that's what if that's all you can find to say about me. Now, I have to say that some of his gestures were probably to keep the the uh, urination from getting on him and the rocks from hitting him. I'm not sure how much he was acting and how much he was trying to keep from getting stoned to death while he was preaching. His sermons were often interrupted with physical persecution. And I'm not kidding. When he preached at one sermon, he was uh, urinated on from the trees. And he continued to preach the entire time, preach the gospel. He was stoned at that same meeting. And he also, when they could not get him to stop preaching, uh... Uh, you know, people rode into the crowds, trampling people with horses, to interrupt him. He never broke stride. He continued to preach. So I imagine he was fairly energetic in his gesture and in his voice when you got all that going. I mean, all kinds of things. If you want to read read his biography? It's wonderful. Listen to Piper's sermon on him. It's very stunning. It was said when he preached in the states. He was in, uh, I forget where he was. He was up in the northeast somewhere. And he was preaching on the banks or near the banks of a river. And it said that you could hear him preaching. He was in D.C. So he was preaching on the banks of the Potomac. And how far was it, Ron? I mean, it was over two miles. People heard his voice. (laughs) Understand it. Yeah, he would have passed Spurgeon's test. He had a voice. And he knew how to project it. And so I find no fault with what he was doing. But it was very different from what Jonathan Edwards was doing. Edwards was just as effective. Very different. Now, let me dispel a myth about him. He did not read every sermon he preached. No. Most of the time he preached without a manuscript. Edwards wrote out and read one sermon that we know of, and it was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's just his most famous sermon. And he wrote that and read it because it was so emotional and because it was so appealing and because he was trying his best to stay away from over-dramatizing. he didn't read every sermon, nor did he write down every sermon word for word. He was more of a practitioner of just writing out an outline and preaching from his heart. He was a heartfelt preacher. He was not overly dramatic, but he was dramatic, and he was heartfelt. His famous uh, statement about preaching was that it was, not a, of the deal, it was not a deal for the mind, but for the heart. He wanted to engage the mind to get to the heart. And once the heart was engaged, the mind would be captivated by the truth and brought under the conviction of the power of the Holy Spirit. So he was very much heartfelt. Now, if you take these two men, and of course we can't hear them, nothing, no recording devices or anything like that, I would imagine the difference, as I understand the difference in these two men would be their venue. Where did Edwards preach? Majority of the time. Inside a church. Inside a church... Fairly small crowd. Where did Whitfield preach? Open air. Thousands of people. In Philadelphia, over ten thousand people gathered in, in 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 the pasture to hear him speak. In England it said when George Whitfield announced his preaching time, people showed up at four in the morning with lantern to get places close to him so they could hear him. I mean this is, so he was preaching to massive crowds in the open air with no projection device. So, yes, they varied in the way they used their voice, and they varied in their gestures. They, they made all different kinds of communication sk- skill being employed. And I would put it down. Now, that may be personality, too, because Whitfield was a very gregarious person. Edwards was not. He was reclusive. But I think their venue determined a lot of this for them, which proves my point. You need to determine your usage Based on your venue. All right. The second instrument God has given you is your body. Yes, preaching is an exhausting, exhausting uh, undertaking. Preaching is at the same time the most joy-filled activity I have uh, that I do every week, and it also uh, in the ministry. And it also is the most exhausting. When I leave here, usually uh, I am I'm done. I'm spent to, to do anything physical the rest of the day. Just it's hard to get done. It's hard for me to go to home group at night and teach after having preached. It just it's just it's exhausting. And um, part of that is because it's an entire body event. It's not just the vocal cords. You, your facial expressions <laughs> are always you know, expressing the message, or should be expressing the message that you're preaching. So if you're preaching on the love of God, you don't want to have this look. Yeah. And if you're preaching on the wrath of God, you don't want to be looking at them like this. The reason some people in our culture don't preach on the wrath of God is because they can't quit smiling. And so, therefore, it's not appropriate. At least he's a good communicator. All right? So we just have to be careful. We know from studies of children, small children, um, it's been documented on video, That you can, with your face, you communicate, and the tone of your voice, you communicate everything to a small baby. And that never goes away. A baby can be sitting there, and you can be talking to the baby about the most loving thing, telling them that you love them. If you're scowling, they get nervous. You can make a baby cry talking about loving them based on your expression and tone in your voice and the look on your face. Okay? Okay? You can also read them the phone book if you're talking with sweet and pleasant tones and smiles and loving looks. They love it. They're entertained by it, okay? Um, Some of you wonder why babies cry when you hold them. It's because you're stiff and scared to death. That or you're a mean person. I'll give you you that you're stiff and scared. You ever had that? Just show you how your body communicates, okay? Okay? Have you ever, some of you that have raised children, and some of you that will raise them e- soon, uh, we got a new dad holding his. When the baby cries at night for the fifth time, and it's now three in the morning, and it's your turn, and you're stumbling in the dark, and you're cursing under your breath. Now, I know none of us do that, but you're, 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 you're put out by this, and you go in, and you pick that baby up, And you check its diaper, and you look for a bottle, and you're frustrated. And your body is putting off frustration, and your holds are putting off frustration, and your tone in your voice putting off frustration. And your and what you know what the baby's doing? Disengaging from you. The baby's scared to death. Your body is an instrument of communication. Your tone is an instrument of communication. Everything you do in preaching makes people react the same way, you know? So uh, in attachment, you learn that when your little girl is crying and scared from night uh, tremors, which happen, you go into Lily, not perturbed because it's 3 in the morning and she's had some outburst in the middle of the night and you've been woken up, but you go in and whether you say anything or not, you just pull her up close, you hold her tight, with but gent- gently loving her, stroke her hair, and hum a little song to her. And all of a sudden, over time, she relaxes. She knows, she's loved, she's cared about. So when you're preaching and you're talking, you're doing the same thing with your body. I, musically, it's just like this. Have you, how many of you have ever heard the piece of music from classical music called The Surprise? Never heard of that? Come on. I don't know the composer, Abigail. I don't know, <laughs> but surprise, Dave. Who who wrote it? Do you remember? I don't remember. It's it's one of those pieces they showed us in sixth grade music class. Do you remember? Sher? Sure, is it Sh- Sherbert? Yes. And then all of a sudden, bang! Uh-huh. He's, you're, yeah, you're, you're, it's lulling you away, and then you're just so relaxed, and you feel so good, and all of a sudden. <laughs> He did it on purpose, yeah. And all of a sudden, you're just entranced with this beautiful music. Wham! He hits you with it. And you're, you know, it gets you. And then he goes back to quiet. And, and no matter how many times you listen to it, it does the same thing to you. And you can do the same thing in preaching. You can do the same thing in preaching. You can be, sometimes you want to be in your most intense points. You want to be as soft and as clear and as deliberate. And people start, you can feel them leaning up, leaning up, leaning up. And on the punchline, you... You deliver it. Set back on their heels. This this is something we think about before we preach, preparing to preach. This separates preaching from a lot of other things we do. And so it becomes, and literally, I'm watching you when I preach, and I'm constantly adjusting my posture and my tone and everything according to the majority of the audience and the subject that I'm speaking of. It's, it's an interactive... When people talk about preaching as if it's a monologue, they've never preached. And they might not have ever heard a good preacher. Because preaching is two-way. It's a dialogue. I'm reading the way you accept the message. So, if you fall asleep on me, don't be surprised if you get the surprise. Right? <laughs> We've all had that teacher that we're passed out on our desk and they slam the book down next to us or whatever, you know. So our body communicates, our expression, our gestures should be appropriate. And when we talk about, often we talk about the Pharisees and we walk over here and we make our point, when we go to talk about the true followers of Christ, it's, it's effective to walk to this side of the pulpit and make our point about the true disciples of Jesus Christ, right? What did I just do? I gestured that there's a separation between the two, just by the way I walked around the pulpit. When I'm preaching or reading or, or strictly sticking with the text, I'm at the, the podium or the 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 um, <coughs> pulpit. But when I and and but when I make a personal opinion statement, where do I go? Over here. What did I just imply? This is. This is truth, absolutely, and if you disagree with this, you disagree with God. This is Carlton's understanding of the truth, and if you disagree with this, you disagree with me, and that's okay, right? This is authority, absolute. This is authoritative, but it's not authority, absolute. It's, It's authoritative because I've studied it, and I'm confident in it, but if you disagree with me, that's okay. So even in our gestures, you know, John Piper, what does he use? He's, he's constantly, right? He's on the pulpit by the end of most every sermon like this, <laughs> right? At some point in that sermon, he's laid out. And if he's talking about being born from above, he's here. And then you're growing up here. I mean, you know? So it's, it's just, it's just and, and Matt Chandler, as we all know, is what? He's always talking about us moving like this. And his, it's just his thing. And you, if you watch people long enough... You'll, you'll pick this up. Where's, where's Charles Stanley? What's his, what's his gesture? Hang on, i got to get my Bible. Bible in hand, flung down. Every time he preaches a sermon, that's where he is, right? John MacArthur? <laughs> Locked, loaded, disseminating the truth. Every now and then, but mostly here, Right? Who, Driscoll? He doesn't have a podium. He has, a, he has a, a little table that he's laid his stuff down on. And he, and he typically holds his hand. When he's talking to you. He's doing his hands like this. And his gesture is not so dramatic. But listen to him. When he jokes, it's... <sighs> he's restraining his laughing. Because he wants to laugh at himself. He knows that's bad, that's bad for a comedian. You never laugh at yourself. And so he'll get to telling when he gets into his personal reflections and he's being funny and the audience starts laughing. Listen to him. <laughs> he's holding it in, you know. It's funny. So when you're a practitioner of preaching, you tend to watch preachers, listen to preachers, and try to see what they're doing. Now, you have to be careful because what happens if you do it too much? You start mimicking them. How many preachers have I listened to? And and I say this respectfully, but the best sermon, the best, if you can only listen to one together for the gospel sermon, you need to listen to David Platt. I'm going to tell you, when you listen to him, it's John Piper, made over. The way he talks, a lot of the way he pronounces words, they're just like John Piper, just like him. Now, that could be David Platt. I'm not, I don't know him well enough. I don't personally know him, but it could be an influence, and it's not bad. He's not copying him. It's just, it, 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 it's just ama- it's astounding to me. You listen to him enough, and it just sounds like a lot of the way he expresses it. Um, the guy that's taking Piper's place in the pulpit sounds a lot like him. That could be because they are both spent so much time in Minnesota. But, uh, but anyway, so we, we uh, preachers all have hallmarks. Don't tell me mine. I'll get... Uh, I'll be self-conscious of it. All right. So um, you want to exude humility and confidence at the same time. You want to exude passion and reason. You want to exude from your, <coughs> your speaking excitement and restraint. I mean, it's the it's it's Aaron's truth intention from the pulpit. You're humble, but you're confident. Right? I mean, that's hard to pull off, isn't it? Unless it's authentic. You're passionate, but you're reasonable. You're not being driven by passion. Only. You get the point. So we want to do this while we're preaching with our voice, with our body. And finally, and lastly, and some might say least importantly, the way we dress. The instrument of communication known as our dress code or the occasion of dressing. You, you don't want to overdress so that you make everybody uncomfortable. Um, I've, I've been in situations like that, you know, you're at the church camp, it's around the church campfire, everybody's wearing, it's, it's July, everybody's wearing the coolest clothes they can wear, and dude walks in with a suit like mine, and you're like, well, somebody didn't tell him he was outside, and he was at a campfire at night, you know, he has no idea what, he <laughs> <League of Duncan. laughs> no, he dressed down, he just had his sports coat with his little hanky, and he had his, he still cuff cufflinks. cufflinks, that's right, so, you know, we, we, uh, we joke, but you, 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 you don't want to do that. One, you're uncomfortable. I guarantee you, if you get that guy alone, he was uncomfortable. The moment he walked in, he realized, uh-oh, you know, this, this is not good. I, when I'm speaking at a church I'm not familiar with, I ask them, what's appropriate? What, you know, how do you... I, and I try to be appropriate with my dress. Um, you don't want to be too casual either. And, and the reason is is because you give the idea off by the way you've even dressed that it's not very serious what you're here to talk about. If you come looking like a clown, don't be surprised if they treat you like a clown and they treat the message like the message of a clown. Okay? Now, so what do I mean by that? Well, I can say this from experience that when, um, when I was younger, um, I, I, I fell into this trap a lot. We had to be careful with being, trying to be too hip from the pulpit, trying to be too uh, cosmopolitan, so to speak. The point is to be, to be non-distracting. So if it depends on context. In a context in the South, what's the expectation? Your first time to a church. What, now, it's changing some, but what's the expectation in the Bible Belt? Two. In downtown Manhattan... Maybe not so much, right? Maybe not so much. So we can think through those things. It's not a legalistic thing. We don't say you must wear a suit or you're violating God, okay? But if I show up in here with a Hawaiian shirt on and flip-flops, I've just communicated from the very beginning something that's not very helpful, it's distracting. Everybody's like, did he forget he was supposed to preach today? he showed up and all of a sudden he was preaching? You know, uh, it's context. If you're in... (laughs) a different context, you need to know where you are. And I give you a positive example of this. Like when MacArthur's at the Shepherds Conference, he wears ties, suits, this kind of thing. But when he's at their college uh, conference, he doesn't do that. When he speaks at their, um, I forget the name of it now. uh, I forgot the name of it. Anyway, the, uh, the singles and college age conference they do every year, usually either right before or right after Shepherds Conference, he dresses completely different. More relaxed, but, but he's, still, he's still presentable. He's, he's got a button-up shirt and some khakis on usually, and he's preaching. And I know, if, you know, if somebody from the church showed up, they'd think, my goodness, what's happened to Dr. MacArthur? He's lost his mind, you know. But, but he's, he's contextualizing. He's, he's, um, he's, he's um, meeting his audience where they are, and he's not trying to be inappropriate so that he's distracting. When your whole audience is one rule to follow, this is one rule to follow. I usually try to think of one step above where everybody else is going to be. One step, one step ahead of everybody else. Why? Because that's kind of the way you present leadership. You're just one step ahead. It's not distracting, it's not three-piece suits, not flashy. But it's just one step above. And people, people sense the seriousness. They sense you're there to do business, okay? Sure. And if the president's responding to a natu- national disaster, you want him to respond as a man in charge and look that way and be confident in his way. Yeah. Yes. We do, and, and I agree with that, and that's a lot of I could share with you why I've transitioned to wearing suits in our... That's another conversation, but um, there's a lot of reasons for that. But... Um, but I will say you have to be careful not to go too far so that it becomes legalistic. It becomes, this is, you're not preaching the gospel if you don't wear a suit. Okay? All right, yes. What
1: do you think in general, whether it's voice, body, or dress, style, textualization, any other, like you said before, I think it's, it's just, is it authentic? Yes. Is Yeah. Did did you hear God? (laughs) And you know, Mm -hmm. people leave not talking about the man, but they leave talking about the message. Yes. And and I think that's, I I think a lot of style that we see, especially on TV, because they they know they're playing to a camera. Right. And so a lot of style. The style drives the message. The message doesn't drive the style. Mm -hmm. Like you said, if you're preaching on the wrath of God, I mean, you know. <laughs> Jonathan Edwards centers in the hands of angry God. I mean, he's got to have a different style.
0: Yep. Very deliberate style, yep.
1: And so, I, I mean, I just think it's genuinely in gesture, in dress, in voice. I think you sense if the message is the key and not the man.
0: Yes, yeah. absolutely. You're, again, the key is that everything about you is an instrument and I chose the word important, it's a biblical term, but it's also, if you think about musicians, the instrument is not the focus. When a person is playing the piano, I'm not gawking at the piano. What am I gawking at? The sound coming out of the message being delivered by the piano. Right? The guitar, the drums, whatever. So instruments are not the focus instruments bring out a message or deliver something to us that that is the that's the premiere event okay yeah it does i agree yeah stay in tune those kind of things not be sounding tinny and awful all right thank you um next week could be just this this What I'm going to do is, what I plan to do is just give you an example of what I've taught for the last eight weeks. We're going to end and uh, then, (coughs) you know, with with an example. What would you say? All right. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're grateful for this day. We're thankful that you love us.